The role of the prophets is to offer self-critique. Think about that. The prophets hold up a mirror. They ask us to re-examine, mostly by telling us what we're doing wrong, but sometimes they tell us what we're doing right. They force onto us, as the reader, introspection, and that's always a good thing. But it's also why most of them were killed or silenced or utterly disregarded until centuries after they had died. Because the prophetic message is never safe, but it's always needed. And I think this is still true today. We need the prophetic in our lives, offering us the ability to self-critique. We need to be asking questions like, in what ways am I failing? In what ways do I need to change? What are the ramifications of my actions? Or how are, what are the unintended consequences of my behavior? The prophetic is never popular, but it's needed. Because healthy, good spirituality always has the capacity to self-critique. So let me show you a few examples. Israel it has a long history, but we don't have a lot of time, so let me offer a flyby of the history of Israel thinking about where the prophets emerge. So the story of Israel goes like this. They escape Egypt with Moses and go into the wilderness for 40 years, and they come out with Joshua leading them into the promised land, where they establish a line of judges, and then they establish a line of kings. Samuel appoints Saul as the first king who's succeeded by David, whose son Solomon succeeds him, and together through this monarchy they build a glorious temple mount. But then they split into two kingdoms, order, disorder. Around 930 years before Jesus, the country splits into two. The kingdom of the north is Israel. It includes cities like Shechem and Samaria. And it's led by Jeroboam in the north. And then the kingdom of Judah is the southern kingdom. Cities where Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, where all of them lie. And they're led by Rehoboam. Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. It gets confusing. 200 years later, Assyrians from the northeast rose to military power. Major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah step out into the forefront and try to convince the political leaders of both Israel and Judah not to make political allies with the Assyrians. Israel doesn't listen. Assyria sacks Israel, exiles everyone out of the northern kingdom, and the capital city of Samaria is destroyed. The year is 722 before Christ. The remnant of the northern kingdom is forced to retreat to Judah. Micah emerges at this point declaring Israel's misdeeds and economic and political alliances with Assyria the cause for why they were destroyed. And if they're not careful, it's going to happen to the southern kingdom again. But through God-inspired circumstances... Judah stays off the Assyrian attack by building a tunnel in Jerusalem where goods can be moved in and out of the city. Now that may sound like a weird detail, but you can still walk 
Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem today. You can Google it. It's super cool. By the year 612 BCE, Babylon works their way into power and destroys the Assyrians by first attacking the city of Nineveh, where we get the prophet Jonah. This leads to what most scholars believe to be an Armageddon-type battle in the city of Megiddo. Josiah is king of the southern kingdom Judah. He quickly realizes that Babylon's going to win out and that if he wants to last, then he needs to make friends with the Babylonian Empire. But that is a terrible idea that the kingdom of Israel learned the hard way back in the Assyrians hundreds of years before. So prophets emerge again. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Haggai, they all emerge to tell King Judah, don't do, or King Josiah, don't do it. Don't make partners with the Babylonians. He does. And the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom. They send them into exile twice. Years later, Babylon loses out to a new group, Persia. And Cyrus the Great comes on the scene, realizes that their enemies, the Jews, are scattered everywhere thanks to Babylon. It would be a lot easier to control the Jews if we just imprisoned them back in their old city. So Cyrus the Great summons all of Israel to return home. Build your temple if you want. Live however you want in your own city, but pay me taxes. And so all of Israel got to return to Jerusalem. And that's where we get stories like Ezra and Nehemiah. But we also get prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So that's the abbreviated story of the Old Testament. It's a lot, and I skipped over a bunch. It's probably more than you ever thought you would want to know. But during all of Israel's past, prophets are sent by God one at a time to speak both words of retribution and words of hope. And in both cases, the negative and the positive words by the prophets, they are meant to offer to Israel a mirror so they could self-critique. And sometimes Israel does this. They repent. God forgives. Other times they don't do this and they're destroyed. And that's why we still need prophets today. They reorient us back to humility, back to what is beautiful and true and good. They help us learn the art of forgiveness because that's always where God is waiting back where it's beautiful true and good and Hosea 11 really speaks to this I want to reread the first four verses again Hosea 11 verse 1 when Israel was a child I loved him out of Egypt I called my son the more I called them the more they went away from me they kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them. 
and fed them. This is God's cry to Israel, and I think it's still God's cry to us. The prophets remind us that we are separating ourselves from God constantly, but there is a path in which we can return. And if we do, God is merciful and just. God is always forgiving and loving. God will never forget us. But we have to do the hard work of self-critique. So often when I preach, I offer you a thought or a word or a quote or an idea that sparks intrigue in my mind. It mirrors something in scripture and I let these two big ideas, this idea in culture or the world or an idea of thought and this moment in scripture, and I let them dialogue with one another. I do this a lot, and this is me showing you that I know how to self-critique the way that I preach. And I have another one to offer you today. There's a thing in theological education. It's circulating right now that's fairly popular, and it's called the cosmic egg. I want to explain what this is, and I'll connect it to the prophets in just a minute. It doesn't take long to explain, and it's really easy to hold. The cosmic egg is like an egg, and it has three layers. The first layer is the yolk, the interior layer. And then it has the egg white, and then it has the shell. The yolk, the white, and the shell. They each represent some part of what we are a part of as God's people. The yolk is what the theologians are calling my story. It's the interior deepest layer. My story. The egg white is our story. And the shell is the story. So let me explain what each of those are. My story, the yoke, this is your individuation in the world. This is your gifts and your skill sets and your insights and your ability to affect change and be an agent on your own in the world. This is you being called by God to be fully alive in your own body and in your own mind and living out your story. But you are not an isolated individual only in this world. You are a part of something bigger our story. The egg white of the cosmic egg is our communities, our families, our churches, our identities are bound up in harmony with one another. The egg white is like group dynamics. The outer layer, the shell of the egg, which is the thinnest and most cracked part of the egg, is the ultimate reality of life. The story. The things that are always beautiful, true, and good. The ultimate design of everything. And that's the cosmic egg. And you can play with this theory however you want. What I find to be the most helpful with this particular imagery is that each layer of the egg has both a positive and negative connotation to it. It's like the true and false self. So all of us need a story that is mine, 
that yours, the individual narrative of your life. We all need the ability to self-actualize and self-differentiate away from our families, away from our community, and feel rooted in the person that we are. We all need to pursue life, making something of ourselves, knowing that my story, it matters. My personhood is good. I am made in the image and the likeness of God, and I've come to terms with who I am in the world. That's the good side of my story. But there's a dark side, too. It's really possible to get too focused on my story. We become insular or a loner or narcissistic or self-obsessed. And to break free of that negative dark angle, you need a healthy balance with our story, the egg white. But it too has a good and bad reality. We are all part of something bigger than ourselves. Have you noticed in the news they're starting to qualify for the Olympics now? And the woman who ran the 100 meters set a world record and qualified for the United States. And she's the fastest woman alive right now. Her name's Shikari Richardson. She has the flowing, uh, fiery red and orange hair. Have you seen her? Well, Google it. It's, she's fantastic. And she absolutely can fly. When she won the 100 meters and qualified for the Olympics, they immediately rushed to her, put a microphone and a camera in her face, and just wanted the world to know, what are you feeling right now? She spent the whole interview thanking her family who have helped get her to where she is today. And she dropped this line that is next to the gospel. Without them, there is no me. That's the line. And I can't stop thinking about it. That's what it means to have a positive our story. We are a part of a community that helps define us. Being a member of First Baptist Waynesboro matters. Living in Waynesboro or the Shenandoah Valley matters. Being a part of our school, our family, our teams, our clubs, these identities they matter because without them, there is no me. The communities we are in help define and give space for my story to exist. My story is written within the framework of our story. But this can be bad, too. If you aren't careful, you can forget that there are others living out their stories that we aren't a part of. And we can sometimes make the mistake that my story should be everybody's story. And our experience should be everybody's experience. And that's just not exactly true. So there's a third layer that helps orient all of this and to keep it contained. The shell. That thinly, easily broken outer edge that holds it all together. For the cosmic egg, this is called the story. And as a Christian, I truly believe there is an ultimate design that encapsulates and controls and is the outer framework and boundary that holds all things. This is God's ultimate reality. And what exists at this level 
are all the things that are inherently beautiful, true, and good. Things like love and forgiveness, justice, grace. These are the pillars of the story. So that's the cosmic egg. You've now can run with it. I don't think I need to explain it anymore, but you should play with the dynamism of how these three layers interact with one another. There's a lot to explore that I think is very helpful. But how does this connect to the prophets? The prophets show up reminding both Israel and Judah that they are far too focused on my story and even our story, that they've lost sight of the story. And the only way back or the only way to move forward is to see the cracks that have emerged in their cosmic egg. There's more to life than my story, although your personal narrative matters, and that's the good and bad, dark and light to this. Trauma survivors have a story to tell, and those stories don't need to be suppressed or repressed. They need space. They need to be told, and we need to create space to hear it. Minority people, and women in particular, and honestly, every single person in the world has a my story that needs space to reflect and share, but not at the expense of our story. Our story matters too, but not at the expense of the story. Israel lost sight of what was beautiful, true, and good. And they fell flat time and time again into disorder. And the prophets noticed. They called Israel out on it, and they demanded repentance. That's no different today. Our culture, and it's not our fault, this is the culture we were born into, but we haven't fixed it. Our culture is self-obsessed, narcissistic, and a workaholic. We care very deeply about my story and our story. And it is at the detriment of God's story. We need to be reminded of what Hosea reminds Israel in chapter 11. That God, since we were children, has always loved us, provided for us, fed us, nurtured us, held us, and forgiven us. And that's the story we need to be offering the world. We need to reclaim what is beautiful, true, and good for all people. But we will never do it if we don't learn to self-critique. And if we never learn to self-critique, we will forever remain in disorder.